the message, and then we are going to close with a song that's going to be played, um, and then we'll have a break. Well, if you can stay, great, you know, catch up with some folks over some coffee. We will have Sunday school, adult Sunday school, we'll meet back here in this room, and Dave Johnson will be leading that today. So as we enter into our last uh, few weeks of our church value series, we've reflected on being a Christ-centered, scripturally-based church that functions in the context of a community that deeply shares life together in Christ, that honors the priesthood of all believers, worships in spirit and truth, embraces Christian leadership with a team approach, Values being a people of love and grace, a people of prayer, as Daniel shared with us last week. Next Sunday, uh, Derek Mellaby will be coming up. He's a, one of the executive. He's the executive director. One of the executive directors of the One Life program. He's going to be coming up and speaking on the value of being a people of mission. And this week, we'll dwell upon the biblical call to value being a people of generosity and service. And then in two weeks, I'll wrap the series up really thematically with our first week of Advent, thinking about being the light of the world. So, a people of generosity and service. And again, we're going through these things thinking about our orthopraxy, the things that we value drive the things that we do. So you say, what is that church about? These are the things that we want to be about, things we want to be active in doing, generosity and service. In the Old Testament, we see a tithe set for giving. What's the classic percentage that we always talk about? 10%, 10%, right? A a 10% tithe that, that... you know, again, that was very much of an often uh, agriculturally that would even be applied to your crops and, and to your flocks, a 10% giving. And a lot of that 10% tithe that we talk about actually went to the work of the temple and the work of the Levites, the, pre, the, the, the priests that worked the temple. Um, but it really could be argued that that tithe that we often refer to was more of a starting point than it was an ending point. Um, there, was, there was much other giving that even the Old Testament church participated in. There were free will offerings. There was some very practical giving. Like if you were a farmer, you wouldn't go through, um, after you had harvested your crops, you wouldn't go through a second time. You would leave the, the crops that were down for the poor to come through and harvest. So there, there was a lot of other types of giving going on Um, where the 10% was just kind of a starting point, not an ending point. And in the New Testament, where do we hear about the 10% tithe? Right, nowhere. We don't hear of it anywhere. Now, we we can say that it was a given um, for the the Jewish people, that they understood that that was a minimalistic giving on their parts. But, of course, the gospel was going into Gentile cultures. Was that, you know... But yet, we don't see any teaching specifically on the 10% tithe. Now, again, that's not to argue that we, you shouldn't give 10%. I think it's a great, it's a great place to start. Um, but I think what we need to see in the New Testament scriptures is not that the bar is lowered for giving, but that really the bar is raised for giving. 
Um, and I think we see that uh, in the, the verses that have really been several times are springboard verses in, in the synopsis of the early church in Acts chapter 2. So let's just read those one more time. Acts chapter 2, starting at verse 42. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. Acts chapter 2. There's other scriptures I'll be reading that you can jot down as we go. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. Anyone remember what the Greek word was for fellowship? Koinonia, right? To the, to the fellowship, to koinonia, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved." Now, again, this, you know, this picture that we have here, some people say, oh, did they all sell everything and all take a vow of poverty? And that's, you, you really don't even get that idea in the text because it says things, for example, like they ate together in their homes. So they, many of them still continued to have homes. But there was a willingness whenever there was a need to share all things in common, to sell something they had or to just give it away or to just share it. There was this, this mutual sharing within this community. And I think it's really fitting that we're speaking about generosity and service um, on Thanksgiving week, right? We, we just took a, took a few minutes and talked about all the things that we're thankful for and how rich we are really in, in our culture, in our country. But we also should remember that Jesus says in Luke 12, 48, from everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted much, much more will be asked. So there's this principle that the Lord sets out that, that when you're richly blessed, there's an expectation that comes with that blessing. When it comes to this focus on generosity and service, uh, we're primarily spotlighting ministering to a person's tangible needs. Um, so it could be difficult physical circumstances. It could be lacking basic necessities uh, like food and, or water or shelter or clothing or, or medical care for the sick. It could be care for the elderly, um, care for the physically or mentally disabled. It could be uh, for the marginalized, for the addicted, for the socially oppressed. I mean, the, the, the fingers of this can go out further and further and further. Um, but we're thinking more about kind of the tangible needs of folks. Generosity is defined as giving readily an unselfish willingness to give money, help, or time freely. Service in this context is defined as an action done to help someone in need. And to help is, is to provide assistance, make it, making it possible for someone to do something that they cannot do alone or would have difficulty in doing alone. So I've heard it said that 
such a focus, if, and again, this isn't our only focus. We've talked about being Christ-centered, biblically-based. You know, we, we've talked about all these things that we went through before, but I've heard it said that to have a focus on tangible needs within the church is to participate in what some call a social gospel. And, and you have to be really, you know, the argument says you have to be really wary of this concept. And the argument usually goes something like this. When we focus on felt needs and the social ills of the world, we lose focus on, a real, on the real deeper needs of a person, which are primarily spiritual. We must instead prioritize the eternal over the temporary, spiritual salvation over physical rescue, we must not get too caught up in thinking that we can correct all the pains and ills, social ills of this world, because the earth is destined to be refined by fire and replaced by God's new created order. That's true. <laughs> and I say that if what you're presenting as the gospel only meets tangible needs then there's a problem, right? But does the Bible also call us to a ministry of the gospel that only meets spiritual needs? So we got to ask ourselves, what, what does God's word really say? Right? That's, that's, you know, we want to be a scripturally based church. What does God's word say? How does it encourage us? we got to say, what is the example Jesus left us? What is the example that the early church left us? So may I suggest to you that, that an approach to the ministry of the gospel that's strictly spiritual, strictly spiritual, to the neglect of how it's to manifest itself in the physical and the mental and the emotional and social care of individuals is also an unbalanced approach to gospel ministry. In the Old Testament, God admonishes his people, really we could say over and over, for, parta for partaking in their religious activities, which they would have thought, them, thought very spiritual, while at the same time neglecting or participating in the abuse of those who are poor, those who are the, the alien among them, the downtrodden, the ostracized, the oppressed. One famous passage, and I'll just read a few verses out of this, and is found in Isaiah 58. I'm going to start at verse 5, because he's talking about his people fasting. And he says, is this the kind of fast I have chosen, only a day for a man to humble himself? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed or for laying on sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is, th is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice? To untie the cords of the yoke? To set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked to clothe him and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? 
Then your light will break forth like the dawn, and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call, and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help, and he will say, Here am I. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with a pointing finger and malicious talk, And if you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. And that theme goes all throughout Scripture. It's found also in the New Testament. Um, some, Some verses that many of you have heard before in James chapter 2, starting at verse 14. James says, What good is it, my brothers? If a man claims to have faith but no deeds, can such a faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes or daily food. If one, of you goes, if, if one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. What do we see in the ministry of Jesus? (laughs) Didn't Jesus care for the whole person? Didn't Jesus enter into people who are tormented in mind by demons and heal them? Didn't Jesus heal the iniquities and sicknesses of the people that are around him? Didn't he enter into the oppression of the social outcast? The woman, the tax collector, the sinner... Wasn't it the, wasn't, isn't it the fact that you see the fact that Jesus ministering to the spiritual need of these folks often went hand in hand with him ministering to the mental, emotional, social needs, physical needs of these folks. You think of the John chapter 9 where he heals a man born blind and then he kind of disappears and the man is brought before the Sanhedrin and what happened to you? Who healed you? And then later on, at the very end of the chapter, Jesus goes and finds this guy again after he's been physically healed. And he, he, he comes to believe in the Lord and it's beautiful. It's just, you get this picture, just the two of them, it says, and he worshiped him. We see this carried over into the ministry of the early church as they ministered to those who were in great need among them, feeding them, having lists of widows. James again says, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Now in their culture, culture orphans and widows were the ones that had no other recourse Especially if they had no family to, you know, back, back, you know, if a widow had no family to fall back on, she would have been lost in that culture. It was the church that made sure that they were sheltered. It was the church that made sure they were fed. It was the church that made sure that they had family. So what we're, we see commanded in God's word in the, in the example of Jesus and in the practice of the early church is that our approach to ministry should be holistic. It should be holistic. Now, I would not argue with you, I would not argue with you, nor would God or Christ, that the spiritual needs of the person are the deepest needs of the person. 
But the ministry of the church should be meeting the entire person. Involving body, mind, and soul. Caring and coming for the, in, to the aid of those who are hurting and needy. And also those who are ostracized and oppressed and persecuted and treated with prejudice and injustice. We know that complete restoration is coming, right? I know that complete restoration is out there someday. God has restored my spirit, raised from the dead, from death to life, new spiritual rebirth. There's a new body waiting for me someday, right? The bodily resurrection, a body that won't be mortal. There's a new kingdom that there'll be no more tears shed. There'll be no more injustice, no more prejudice, no more sin, no more rebellion against God. We know that's waiting for us. At the same time, Jesus says that we need to live into the kingdom now. When we enter in with this willingness to meet tangible needs, the needs that are shouting the loudest. It's often then that we find a door that opens up to deeper needs. Have you experienced that before? Can anybody say they've experienced that before? You see that with Jesus. The physical door seems to have to be open first, and then there's, this, then there's kind of a, 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 a vulnerability to the emotional or the mental or the, the, the spiritual needs that are lying underneath. So when you bring that meal to that neighbor that just had a baby and maybe she has some postpartum depression or she just feels overwhelmed or you comfort your cousin whose wife just walked out on him or there's that socially awkward kid that you you come alongside and help with his algebra or you visit your elderly friend who just got sent to the nursing home and is in the green home now and thought they'd be able to stay home to their last days. Or you have two sets of wrenches, and you give one to the young guy who doesn't have any. Or you help a neighbor cut and split their firewood. Or, or you babysit the neighbor's kids for free so they can afford to go out on a rare date. Or you give that local teen who has a terrible home life your home, your family, that they would be brought in and you show them true hospitality. If you give that guy who's, who's lost his license because of a DUI, and maybe it's a third DUI, and you say, you know what, I'm going to give you a ride to work. I'm passing by that way. Or you help a couple who's struggling financially to create a workable budget. Or you help someone who lost their job to pay their electric bill. Or instead of, you give that used car away to someone who desperately needs it instead of selling it. Or you visit the local shut-in who's lonely and you just share a cup of coffee. You know, those things may just be meeting the temporary need. I get it. It might just be the felt need that's shouting the loudest. I get it. But it also just might be the open door that you can step into and build friendship and build trust. That they'd say, oh, there's some other things going on in my life. And and you can share Jesus with them. (laughs) Isn't that beautiful? So jumping back to 
the synopsis of the early church in Acts 2. We see that these, this, this caring for the needs of others, this, these tangible needs of others, was, was really a natural outworking of the impact of the gospel and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. There, there's this fellowship, this koinonia they had. It's really interesting. That word is used in Scripture for the fellowship we have with, with God through Christ, with the fellowship we have with God through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and it's also used then with the fellowship that we have with one another. So we're brought into this greater fellowship, this fellowship with God, into the family of God, and then with one another. But the sharing goes so far that it even has to do with them holding all things in common. And, and we see this changed paradigm, if you will, with how they dealt with even their physical resources. That, that what was once strictly mine now becomes ours. It's a very different it's a very different model. It's a very different paradigm to think about resources and possessions. Um, and it, we see this as, again, the natural extension of koinonia, the natural extension of a shared life. Now, as we see with Ananias and Sapphira, you know, Peter said when they lied about what they gave, hey, this was yours in the first place. What? You, don't, you don't need to lie about it. You still own what you own by God's grace. It's still his gift to you. But there's this willingness to say, hey, what's mine is yours when there's a need. Let's just take the last few minutes and, and think about quickly a few things that hinder a life given to Christian generosity and service and a few things that characterize it. First, uh, uh, three things that hinder generosity. I'd say, number one, straight-up greed. Straight-up greed. A lot of people, this is one of those things where people don't like to think themselves greedy. But my heart is greedy. I know it. You certainly don't have to be rich to be greedy. Andy Stanley's people believe they deserve every good thing that comes their way. Not only that, they believe they deserve every good thing that possibly come their way. Their mantra is, what's mine is mine because I've earned it, and I've got a lot more coming. Let me tell you one thing that greed often masks itself behind. I'm just very frugal. I'm very frugal. When greedy, I get obsessive about money and possessions. When greedy, I value things over people. When greedy, I don't share easily or freely. When greedy, I tend to see people in need as getting what they deserved. Well, they made their bed. And when greedy, I struggle with being content with what I have. And Jesus warns in Luke 12, 15, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And what goes hand in hand with greed is fear. 
So here's another great hindrance to being generous and serving well. It's fear. And fear kind of goes like this in this area. If I give it, I may not have it when I need it. Thought that one before, haven't you? Or if I let them borrow it, they might never give it back, break it, <laughs> scratch it, dent it. And, and here we find this deep struggle to trust that the Lord will supply. And that people are more important than things. That I don't need to fear. Because <laughs> when I fear, I end up keeping a, tense, a, a tight rein over my stuff. So my son calls me a couple weeks ago from Williamsport. Hey, this is just an, I, you know, I, this, confessions, right? So my son calls me a couple of weeks ago from Williamsport. Dad, my, my battery's dead. Okay. Um, I'll, I'll come jump you. So I, I drive down there, and I, I jump his car, and it was like the Lord was telling me, again, audible voice. I mean, it's just like the, the Lord was telling me, give him your jumper cables. It's pretty simple, right? <laughs> give him your jumper cables. And to my embarrassment, I hesitated. These are mine. I feel like a little kid. These are mine. These are my jumper cables. And this is my son, get you. This is my, my own flesh and blood. Randy, and then God, you have two sets of jumper cables. Well, you never can be too prepared, you know? <laughs> and like, if God could roll his eyes, give him your jumper cables. Okay, here, you know? So I can be greedy for other people. Just yesterday, um, Cheryl, I noticed I had bought these nice boots for Cheryl. She's actually wearing them today. I bought them for Christmas, and I had noticed my daughter had worn them. And I said, Cheryl, do you know that Amber is wearing those boots that I gave you? And she was wearing the boots I bought her like six years ago. And she's like, yeah, I can share my stuff. <laughs> As I'm preparing a message on generosity, and I'm like, of course you can, dear. Of course you can. <laughs> if I give it, I might not have it when I need it. If I borrow it, I might not get it back. Someone might mark it. Someone might break it. It's fear. Those, th those, things don't, those things don't show me being wise and frugal. They show me being greedy and fearful. Third, there's apathy. In a world that, that I'm so overwhelmed with information and awareness of need and brokenness, and it's so easy to grow cold, it's so easy to grow indifferent and uncaring and cynical and unsympathetic. There's so many needs out there. Where would I even start? How would I even make a dent? Maybe I should just worry about myself. And like I said, greed doesn't, greed doesn't know isn't restricted to certain economic corridors. You could, tie, you could have tied your entire life, your 10%, to the cent, and you could still be greedy, fearful, and apathetic. To work against these hindrances, I have to foster a heart of, of generosity. I have to foster a practice of generosity. Paul encourages at the end of his uh, first letter to Timothy, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, 
which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. So what are a few things quickly that characterize generosity? This theme of Christian generosity. I would say that, A, it starts at home and it presses outward. It begins with all those who can provide for themselves to provide for themselves. To be productive members of society. If you cannot provide for yourself, how are you ever going to help anyone else? Now that's... That's also saying that there are some people that because of physical handicap, mental handicap, certain social situations, aren't able, at least for a time, to provide for themselves. And sometimes they're victims of that. Sometimes they're choosers of that. Usually some strange concoction of both. But if you're able to provide for yourself, provide for yourself. Be a productive member of society. Paul says in Ephesians 4.28, He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his own hands so that he may have something to share with those in need. So interesting. You're stealing. You're taking advantage of people. Stop doing that. Get to work. Be productive. And you're productive not just for yourself, but so that you can share with others. This also means providing for and being generous to your own family. It would be wrong, for example, to be ministering to the needs of everyone else while your elderly parents weren't cared for, right? It starts at home and then works outward. Christian generosity then ministers to your spiritual family and then to your local community and beyond. Galatians 6, 9, and 10, let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. If you can envision it, if it's helpful, it's like if you throw a big a stone in a pond, that that first impact of generosity should be your own family, right? And then it goes out to your church family and it goes out to the needs of your neighbors in the community and then goes out to, to the world, right? That supporting missions and having a compassion child. There's really so many ways you can have impact and we can corporately have impact together, but it's that ripple effect, And another thing that should characterize Christian generosity and service is that it's personally sacrificial. Things that matter, time that matters. It's not just this disconnecting, connected giving of my excess. It's not just throwing my used clothes that I don't want anymore in a Salvation Army bin. It's real sacrifice, it's personal sacrifice. It's Jesus showing his generosity and care and service through you. It's you giving you. It's multidimensional. It, it may be writing a check. 
but it might be sharing your time. It might be sharing your home and hospitality. It, it, it might be sharing your talents. It might be sharing your know-how. You might be, be giving of generosity and service in the name of Christ by helping teaching a young guy how to put brake pads on. Or, or someone that's struggling with addiction that needs, needs, needs some, uh, some extra support and you give them a ride to the addiction recovery group. It's personally sacrificial. And then lastly, what should characterize Christian generosity and service is an attitude that is humble and cheerful. It's not to impress but it's given with quiet humility. It's not done under obligation, which is really interesting because so often we give out of obligation. And, and the Bible, and I'll read these verses and it'll be the last verses I read. Paul's like, don't give under obligation. It should be a cheerful gratitude because God has given us so much. It's always that reciprocation. God has loved me, so I love. God has forgiven me, so I, for, I forgive. God has shown me grace, so I show grace. God has given to me, so I give. You get it? That's not obligation. That's gratefulness. It's not showy. It's not to impress. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount... Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness for men to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that you, your giving may be in secret. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So it should be humble and quiet. And then the last verses I want to read out of 2 Corinthians. Chapter 9, verses 6 through 8. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, right? He's the one you're trusting in. So that in all things, at all times, having all that you need you will abound in every good work. So as a church, we want to be a people that values generosity and that values service, all done in the name of Jesus. Showing love and care for the restoration of the entire person, physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, as those doors open up, as we enter into and engage those needs, shown to us by the example of Christ, the example of the early church, and commanded us in his word. We're going to close our last few minutes here with a song. I just ask you to, to listen, and we'll have the words up on the screen here. <laughs>